Well, it looks like a lot of the WANA leaders have decided not to come tonight. Friday, we had an overnighter with the older Awana kids, and so we stayed here all night, Friday to Saturday morning, and it was quite an adventure for all of us. I did get to sleep a little bit, so that was nice, um, but I think that's kind of why a lot of people are out, is because they are exhausted from Friday. We also had a, a Expositors League, which was a lot of fun, where we're teaching young men and young men to teach or to preach and young women to teach, and uh So we had our first one on Tuesday. It was well attended between us and First Baptist. There were 18 people there who were interested in learning how to preach and teach God's Word. So if you will join me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 12. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the seats in front of you. And that's where we're going to be. And in order to set the scene for this passage, I want you to consider a farmer. Now, we in Arizona probably don't have as many farmers as, say, the Midwest. I know that there are the seas of Arizona, copper, cotton, and cows, and that's the three seas of Arizona. So cotton farmers, and my, uh, my grandfather, not the one that you guys knew, was a cotton farmer, and he would work hard to grow cotton. A farmer will take great pains to work on his field, won't they? They spend a lot of time breaking the soil, preparing the ground, maybe fertilizing, planting the seeds in an appropriate way. And they spend a ton of physically demanding labor on this. Have you ever worked hard for something? Have you ever worked hard maybe making a project for a loved one or doing a hard job? And afterwards, what do you feel? You feel a, a sense of accomplishment? Someone said tired, I think, I heard. Right, we, we have a sense of accomplishment after working hard for something. And so the farmer, in the same way, works hard. But the problem is, when the farmer plants and works the ground, he's not guaranteed a crop, is he? When the farmer plants, he fertilizes, he puts the, 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 the seed in the ground, and then he has to wait. He has to see what nature will do. Maybe there will be rain at the right time. Maybe a frost will kill his crop. He has to rely on something greater than himself. So the farmer has to trust in God to grow the harvest. Now I want you to imagine a farmer trying to force this crop to grow. What would that look like for a farmer to try to force his crop to grow? Maybe he would go out to the field and talk to his plants. Maybe play some relaxing music to try to make his plants grow. But ultimately he cannot make his plants grow. And that's what we see in the Christian life. This is a depiction of the practical Christian life. In fact, I would say there's not much more important and more practical than this. How do you grow as a Christian? And then this is what Paul is addressing. So go ahead and turn to verse 12 in chapter 2 in the book of Philippians. And it says this, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence but even more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless 
in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world. By holding firm to the word of life, then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for this week, this week of, of activities that was jam-packed with things of this church that shows that a, a church that is growing. Father, we are growing not only in activities, but also in our spiritual walk with you. Father, I, as I look out at our congregation, I see people whose walk in their faith is growing. I see some who are stagnant and who are not progressing in their faith. But Father, I see growth, and we thank you for the growth that you have given. God, as we study this passage today, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, help us to receive what you have for us today. Do not let us harden our hearts. Do not let us be like the Israelites in the wilderness who hardened their hearts at God. Let us be open to your word. Father, in this passage, there are some hard things that are said. I pray that you would help us to receive it and grow with it. Father, I ask that you be with me. Help me to say exactly what you would have this passage be relayed to these people. And all these things we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. So there's nothing more practical than this passage, is there? Can you think of anything much more practical than how to be a Christian? For those of us who are Christians, how do you be a Christian? How are you a Christian? Paul is telling us exactly how to strive for Christ-likeness. He is saying, put on your Christian clothes and be a Christian. Stop acting like the world. If you want to grow as a Christian, you need to see this. Can you turn me down just a little bit, Miss Sabine? I think I'm kind of too loud. So last week, we saw Jesus. We saw Jesus, the humble God who came down, existing in the form of man and dying a sacrificial death in order that he would be exalted and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we talked about that for Easter. And then before that, we saw that if there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation and love, any fellowship with the Spirit, any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way. And Paul is pointing to what it means to be a gospel-centered person, how you get along with the people around you. You do not pull away. And he really emphasized that two weeks ago. And so what does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel? And he kind of picks up that theme again. He has given us an example through Christ, and now he picks up that theme about what it looks like to be a Christian through the example of Christ, through his life and death. The practical Christian life, though, is joyful, steadfast obedience. Now, here's the risk. There's always a risk with a passage like this. When you read it, the little legalist in me starts to come out. The legalist in me wants to say, there are five steps to be obedient to God, and we must all do it. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus. And so I want to do better. I want to be better. And I'm going to white knuckle it till I make that happen. 
The problem is, that's not what is being intended in this passage. Paul is not saying, here's the five steps or the 12 steps to a happy, drug-free life. He's not saying these are the ways that you put on your Christian clothes. You start with your shoes, and then you put your pants on. That would be a weird way to put your clothes on, but let's say that's not what he's saying. He's not saying that's how you do it. Okay, so I want to, as a way of an introduction, tell you the five factors that work in you to change you. There are five factors. The first thing is truth. Truth changes you. When you hear the word of the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ, that starts to change the way you think about things. When you realize that there's more to this world than just the physical aspects, that there is a spiritual realm, that truth begins to change how you see your struggles. The second thing is that suffering and struggle changes you. When you suffer, you change. When you struggle, you change. Just like when we work out, we are physically struggling against a heavier weight that builds up our body. The third thing is that wise people will change you. How many of you have had a wise advisor? I remember words that my dad said to me when I was eight or nine years old because he was a wise counselor to me. His truth that he has taught me changed me. The last two things are that God changes you. God changes you. And the fifth thing is that you change. And that, would, that is what this passage is concerned with. How does God change you and how do you change you? So let's go ahead and look at how God and you are changing you. It's a little hard, a little bit of a tongue twister there. So I want you to recognize that this whole sermon should stir us up because we get to participate in the change in our life. So let's keep that in mind. The first step that we see, or the first thing that we see, is that the practical Christian life is obedient. The first thing in 12 through 13 is that there is obedience. This is what Paul says. He says, work out your salvation. Starting in verse 12, he says, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's a pretty loaded statement, isn't it? We have some words about obedience there. And then we have this phrase, work out your own salvation. How many of you are like, wait, wait a minute, Paul. Faith is by grace alone through faith alone. Or Christ, you know, salvation is by faith alone through grace alone. We don't work to be saved. What are you talking about here, Paul? We'll get to that. The first thing we notice is that Paul is talking to believers he says, therefore, my dear friends, or my beloved, he is talking to believers. If you think that this is for unbelievers, you're going to be real confused as how we are saved. Because it sounds like we work out our salvation, but Paul is talking to believers who we would consider already saved. So that's the first thing you need to recognize. The second thing is, just as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but even more in my absence. Paul is talking about obedience. In fact, he's picking up from verse 12, where they wanted to know what was going on with Paul in his life. And so he is reminding them of that. This is the connection to earlier in the passage. And he says, just as you have always obeyed. So the people are believers. The pathway is through obedience and then finally, or secondly, or thirdly, whatever we want to call it, effort is involved. Work out salvation. 
What does it mean to work out your salvation? Is it something that just randomly happens? Or is there actual effort involved? It really sounds more like strain after. Put labor into it. Just like a farmer works his field, physically demanding job, in order to maybe have a crop. Because he's not guaranteed that crop. So he says, work out your salvation. Now, here's the thing about the word salvation. It can mean several things. It could be a physical salvation, like he got saved from a shipwreck. Or it could mean something like spiritual salvation, where God will save you at the end of days. And when we take down the spiritual level of salvation, there's three things that kind of are in mind when we talk about salvation. It could be one of these or all three of these. The first thing is justification. I'm using fancy words because they are necessary to understand this concept. Just like a doctor would have to explain your illness with a fancy term, that's what I'm trying to do here. So, justification, that you are made in right standing before God. That's the first step in salvation, being made in right standing before God through Jesus Christ. The second thing is sanctification. That is the process of being made holy, and that's what we have in mind here, is the process of being made more like Christ. Because without being holy, no one sees God. That's what we are told in Scripture. And finally, the third aspect of salvation is glorification. That is where, when we're made complete. We are made perfect when we stand before the holy and perfect God completed our sanctification to glorification. So that's what Paul has in mind here, is salvation in the, in the way of sanctification and being made more like Christ. So he says, work out the process of being more like Christ. And he says it in this way, with fear and trembling, with sobriety, with a seriousness. So when we hear about this working out your own salvation, some people will get confused as to what that means. Some people will say that that means it's your right hand and your left hand operating together, cooperating in order to make this happen. That's not what is in mind here. In fact, we'll discuss that more as we go further. So, sobriety, fear and trembling. So it's real easy to get legalistic in all this, isn't it? When, I, when you hear, work out your own salvation, you can be like, okay, well, I'm going to make myself holy. I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to make myself perfect before God. In fact, fear and trembling sounds like how a lot of you are motivated. It sounds like how a lot of people are motivated. When I was in the Army, one of my NCOs said, there's two ways to get what you want done. Either they will fear you or they will respect you. It has to be one of those two things. Either they fear you or they respect you to get your soldiers to do what you want them to do. And that's how the NCOs, the, the, the non-commissioned officers in the Army, back in the day when they would stand in line and hold out their muskets and they would fire in a line, that's how they would be forced to stand there in front of another group of guys holding guns at each other and everybody firing at once. Because there was an NCO walking back and forth with a pistol, shooting anybody who ran. They would motivate through fear. But that's how we actually use our everyday lives, isn't it? Think about it. Are your actions permeated by fear? My kids must look a certain way and wear a certain type of clothing. Otherwise, people may look at me badly. That's a form of fear. Or maybe I need to act a certain way. Otherwise, someone may mock me. Or maybe in school, you have a fear of the deadline. My 
paper is due. And so I am scared and motivated by that fear of failing. We are motivated, motivated, I can't even say that word, motivated with fear. How many businessmen are motivated by fear? Think about Wall Street and all the stock markets things. And when people get scared, they start to buy or they sell and they all act out in irrational ways. Maybe the businessman or the one that has a company is afraid of losing their business during a pandemic. Maybe you as an employee are motivated by fear and not getting that next promotion. So you work extra hard or you stay extra late and, and neglect your family. Maybe you are motivated by fear in health reasons. Maybe you are motivated by fear in not getting enough money. These are all motivations that we use in our everyday life. In fact, we're permeated by fear. But is that what Paul has in mind about God? That we take one fear and trade it for a greater fear? I would say partly, yes. That is one of the things. We have to fear God more than man. But we fear in the sense of worship. This word fear and trembling can also be recognized as worship of God. In fact, it really fits with our context, doesn't it? At the very end of our last sermon, we talked about 9, 10, and 11. And that was the language of worship. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That fear, that awe, that worship. When I was young, I used to really enjoy going and standing by the ocean when I was growing up in Africa. The ocean was so much more powerful than I was. It was so much greater. And I got there and I would get tumbled around in the waves and I would just say, I am enveloped by something greater. And I had a respect for the ocean. Just like all of us, if we went to the Grand Canyon, we would not sit there and start listing our accomplishments in life. I would not walk up to the Grand Canyon and say, I just want everyone to know I was successful in my life. No, you're in awe of the beauty and the, the, the depth and the width and just the fullness of what the Grand Canyon is. You don't go there and start trying to send your resume out to people. You are in awe of something greater than yourself. So what if your motivation was based on the joy of being cared for by God? What if that was your motivation? What if your motivation was being in awe of God in everyday life? Maybe being motivated that he is working each circumstance in life for good. That's what we're going to see in this next verse. Go ahead and look at verse 13. For it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. This morning I was reading a, a social media post, and you shouldn't go on social media before church because you get distracted. And I saw on there an atheist forum. And on that atheist forum, they said all the contradictions in the Bible. And they had this big, long list. And a lot of them weren't really even contradictions. I wouldn't even, like, they're not even intellectually honest about it. There are some things that you would want to wrestle with, but most of those, they were not there. But this is something that they would say seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? Like it says, Paul says, work out your, your salvation with fear and trembling. And then it says, for it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Doesn't that sound like a contradiction to you? What do you do with that, Christian? If I was an atheist and I came to you and I brought the Bible and I said, what do you do with that? How would you answer that atheist? 
Would you have an answer for that atheist? The first thing you notice is that it says, work out your salvation. And then you see that God is the one who is working in you. You work out while God works in. Go back to our farmer analogy. The farmer is working to plant and working hard to do it. But God gives the growth. God allows the seeds to grow. God gives the rain. God gives every aspect to allow it to grow. And we see what God does as he works in the believer. First, he he works to will. In other words, God changes the will of the human being. He gives them a desire to do this work of sanctification, this work of being more like Christ. He puts in you a desire. The second is that he is to work, to will and to work. God is giving the power to actually make this thing happen. In fact, you can even look at Philippians chapter 1, and he says this. He says, I know that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God starts the work and he completes it. And it's all according to his good purpose. Do you find comfort in that? You're not working it with your own strength. God will accomplish what he started in you. If you are struggling in your life right now, maybe with some sin, know this. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and have submitted your life to him, he will complete the work in you. That's a promise. That's what he says in verse 9, that he will do it. Are you actively working out your salvation? That's the, the main question for you this, this morning. Are you participating in this process? Are you a part of this? So I remember how I mentioned that some people get confused as to whose part is what and how we do what part in the whole sanctification process. Is it two hands working together? One is God, one is you. Are you cooperating with God or does he do most of the work and you don't do any of the work? How does this work, you may ask? Well, it works just like a farmer plants his seeds and breaks the ground and hopes for growth. He prays for growth. And God is going to grow plants whether, whether that farmer works or not. There will be change. I'm reminded of when um, my family got me a rower, one of those rowing machines, for my birthday about a year ago. And as I was rowing on this machine... My daughter runs over and says, I want to row too. I want to row too. And so she jumps in my lap. And then eventually she climbs up onto my shoulders. And I'm here rowing with her sitting on my shoulders. Did she actually, was she involved in the rowing? Not really, but she got to participate. So she felt like she was part of the process. And that's what we get. We, uh, we get to make appointments with God. So are you making appointments to meet with God? Are you plowing the field in order to meet with God? Are you setting aside time to talk to God for that sole purpose of spending time with the Lord? Are you filling your mind with his word through the reading of the Bible? Are you meditating on God's word? Are you thinking about God's word? Are you making these times for this to happen? You know, one of the reasons why your life is so shallow spiritually is because you don't think about what you read, even if you read it. 
How many, of, how many of us have said, I have to read one chapter a day in my Bible reading in order to be right with God? And so we read a passage and that's it. We don't think about it. We don't even return to it in our mind. That's shallow reading that will not grow you. It's like watering the plants one time and expecting them to stay green. Meditate on the Word. If you don't think about it, if you don't ruminate on it, you're not going to get the nutrients you need in life. The second thing that you should do is to commit to surrender to what God's Word says. This is the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian reading the Bible. The non-Christian who reads the Bible will not submit to it as the Word of God. They don't surrender to it as God's Word. They think that they are above it, and therefore it will not change them. You need to ask God to help you defeat any sin that He brings to your mind as you study that passage. In fact, write it down and commit to putting it to death, to work out your own salvation, to weed out the sin in your life. If you were to plant a field and a bunch of weeds popped up, what would you do? Would you let those weeds continue to choke out the plants, or would you begin to pluck them one at a time? This is working out your salvation. You're putting to death the sin in your life, the stuff that God brings to mind you are putting to death. If you do this, you are on your way to being a practical Christian. But Paul doesn't stop there. In verse 14, he says, do everything without grumbling and arguing. Now, this is a life verse, if I ever heard one, for my children. Other people should do this, not me, right? Do everything without grumbling and arguing. Wouldn't that be nice to have in before our mind all the time? He says, so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world. Then now look at this in verse 16, the very first part of 16, by holding firm to the word of life. So in this, we see that there's a command. In verse 14 is a command. It says, do everything without grumbling and arguing. Why would Paul throw that in there? Like of all the things for him to say, he could, he could say, do no sin or stop sinning or stop doing this. But he says, do not or do everything without grumbling or arguing. Why would Paul put that there? What are some solutions? This is, the reason I ask these kind of questions is because this is what I want you to do when you are reading these passages on your own at home. I hope you're reading this on your own. I want you to ask the questions that are difficult. Why would he say that? Well, for one thing, Paul is steeped in the Old Testament. He knows the Old Testament backward and forward, and allusions to the Old Testament will always pop out. In fact, he is actually referring to an event that happened in the Old Testament, an event that happened in the book of Exodus. Let me read it to you and see if you can hear the similarities. Starting in chapter 17 of the book of Exodus, verse 1, the entire Israelite community left the wilderness of sin, moving from one place to the next according to the Lord's command. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So the people complained to Moses, give us water to drink. Why are you complaining to me, Moses replied to them. Why are you testing the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and grumbled against Moses. 
They said, why did you ever bring us out from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And I would add, why did you save us from slavery where we were being killed by the Egyptians and just let, bring us out here to get some water to drink? Do you hear what Paul is saying? Paul is saying that those people are grumblers. The people who are not the people of God are grumblers and arguers and complainers. In Deuteronomy 32.5, it says, His people have acted corruptly toward him. This is their defect. They are not his children, but a devious and crooked generation. When we read that psalm, Psalm 95, it brings up Meribah, the, the waters of Massah, the bitterness. That's where they were grumbling and complaining in Exodus. Paul is giving this command about not grumbling. And let's go ahead and look at this command. Don't grumble about anything at all because it leads to arguing or debating or conflict. Every aspect of life is what this applies to. That's pretty, pretty extensive, isn't it? When you're at home, do not grumble. When you are at church, do not grumble. When you are at work, do not grumble. When you are at home, do not grumble. Did I already say home? Do not grumble everywhere. Every aspect of life, the murmuring or the grumbling is the moral rebellion against God. Or then the disputing or doubting is the intellectual rebellion against God. Both of these are rebellion against God. Now, our culture is a culture of grumbling, isn't it? Grumbling takes many forms. In fact, I heard this story about a wife when she was asked by someone. They asked her if she ever woke up grumbly or grumpy. Do you ever wake up grumpy, the lady said. And she replied, no, I let him sleep in. We see that complaining festers. And it's really indicative to an ungrateful heart. You are either humbly grateful or you are, you are grumbly and argumentative. It's the slow drip of destruction for your own soul. It rots your own heart. And then even that, it rots those that hear it. It's like water dripping on a beam that's supposed to support the house. And if it's not taken care of, that whole house will fall down. So this is just my personal suggestion. This is not what the Bible says. This is my suggestion. So take it as you will. Before raising a complaint, I want you to consider these things. Number one, is it important? Is it important? Is the thing that I'm about to complain about really that important? Does it have an effect on the gospel? Is it, does it have an effect on the mission of this church? Is it important? If it's not important, don't bring it up. Nobody needs to hear that rot. Second thing, is it fixable? Can I do something helpful to fix it? So there's two things in that. Is it fixable? Man, I really, really don't like that we're in Sierra Vista, this church. Can we fix that? Okay, we'll move over to Huachuca City. You know, like, come on, guys. If it, is it fixable? Is it something that we can fix? If it's fixable then maybe consider, can I do something about it? 
If you're going to complain or argue, look for a solution. Man, this door is real squeaky. I'm going to go tell everybody here how much I hate how squeaky that door is. Why don't you get some WD-40 and bring it to church and spray the hinges? No one's going to be mad about that. Is it fixable, and can I do something about it? And finally, if I can't do something about it, who do I tell that is closest to the problem? Closest, that's the key word in this. Who can I tell that is closest to the problem? Oh, I'm going to go tell pastor how much I hate this carpet. Well, I'm not closest to that problem, friends. Or I'm going to tell the pastor that so-and-so said something mean 10 days ago. Well, I don't even know so-and-so. I got a call a couple months ago by an atheist who was mad about something that happened at Walmart by somebody that doesn't come to this church. Don't even, the atheist didn't even know us at this church. Just was mad. Go to the, the closest to the problem. If that pro, go to that problem. So I'm going to be real honest. I don't mind hearing complaints because it tells me where your heart is. I learn a lot about you when you come to me and complain. Just let that be a fair warning. And I know what's important to you. If you tell me and you're upset about something that's very trivial, I will listen to you and I will empathize with you. I'm going to be honest, though. I'm going to know that you are caring about non-gospel issues. And I'm going to know what's going on in your heart. So how do we get over this grumbling? How do we work at our own salvation and grumbling? The first thing is, what are you focused on? Because most people who grumble and complain, it's because something uncomfortable happened to them. I don't like this chair, not because I'm worried that our guests may be uncomfortable, but because my bottom is uncomfortable. I, I don't like how this happens, because not, not for other people, but because it bothers me. When we grumble, we're focused on ourselves. If you're focused on the grace of Jesus Christ, your grumbling will begin to dissipate. I want you to think about it. If you are walking in thankfulness about who Jesus Christ is and what he did for you in your place, maybe you can start to offer others a little bit of grace. Consider that this week. And then verse 15, it tells us the purpose. Whenever you see a, a, the word so that, go ahead and read what happened above it so that you understand what is going on. There's a purpose there. And he explains so that you aren't stained by the things of this world. Go ahead and look at verse 15. So that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation. You hear those words before? Crooked and perverted generation? We just read about it. Among whom you shine like stars in the world. That's a reference to Daniel 12. We're not going to get to the Daniel 12 today, but just know it's a reference. So he's saying, so that... You prove yourself to be a Christian. Do not grumble and complain or argue because you prove yourself to be a Christian when you don't. You're like gold, not mixed with something else. You are pure. You are standing out. That's why he talks about the, the stars in the sky. The stars shine out of a black background. You are going to be different than the world. When you... You stand out when you refuse to join in to what the world does. That's why conflict in the church is so disgusting, because that's the way the world handles problems. And we are not of the world. And when we act like the world, the world looks at us and says, you people are no different than us. 
You want to make a difference in this world? You want to make an impact in your world? Begin by not grumbling and arguing, but by living in light of the truth. And then you will be like Christ. Verse 16 gives us the means. The very first part of 16 says, by holding firm to the word of life. It completes the thought of verse 15. So how do you shine like stars in the world? Well, by holding firm to the word of life. And then Paul says he can boast about it. So let's explore what Paul means by holding firm to the word of life. What do you think that that word means? Holding firm. Well, it's like more than one word. But what do you think that phrase means? Holding firm to the word of life. Well, obviously it means to hold on to, right? That would make sense. But it's more like fixing your attention on or setting your heart on. Sometimes it's referred to holding firm to an infant. How many of you have seen pictures of dads and moms with a newborn baby? What do those pictures look like typically? Do you see mom like holding them like this, like a football on the side? Or are they holding them like this and their face is down, looking at that beautiful face of that baby and they're holding on to it? That's the language that's being used here. That's what Paul is referring to. When he says, hold on to the word of life, it means that you are holding that infant close to you. You are looking at it tightly. You're not going to let it drop. And there's another way that it could be understood is holding forth or holding out. So just as I would hold the baby, maybe put the head up a little bit and show you, but I'm still holding tight to it. That's what Paul is saying we do with the word of life. And what is the word of life? Anybody know? Any guesses? I'm, I'm ready for suggestions. The Bible, right? God's word. The word of life. So hold on to the word of life. If you would be changed from a rebellious grumbler to a righteous example to the world, you need to hold fast to God's word. In fact, it needs to be more precious to you than a newborn baby that you hold and focus your attention on which will lead to great joy. And that's what Paul gets into here, our third section. The practical Christian life is joyful. So last, last um, point was steadfast. And the one before that was obedience. And so I made a full sentence, guys. Look at this. The practical Christian life is joyful, steadfast obedience. 17 through 18, he says... But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Paul had a personal ministry of joy. His ministry was joy. In fact, he is inviting others to have the same joy. So Paul is not just saying stuff that he doesn't do. Remember when he was in chains in Philippi, the same city that he's writing a letter to? He was in chains in the deepest, darkest part of their prison. And what were they doing in there? Grumbling, complaining about how mean this jailer was. They were singing. They were singing praises and hymns, and all the other prisoners were listening to them. In prison, chained up, bound. But the word of God is not bound, Paul says. So instead of grumbling, Paul is glad and rejoices. In fact, 16b covers that. He says, then I can voice, or voice, then I can boast in the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. Paul is not talking about boast 
in the sense of how proud of, uh, he is of himself. He's talking about rejoicing. This word boast really kind of means more like it's an exclamation of joy. I can be joyful in this because I did not run in vain. Paul, of all people, probably was the least likely person you would expect to have a lot of joy in prison. And then it says, but even if, in verse 17, he's describing his trust in God in all circumstances. Paul displays how to have joy in his trying circumstances. In fact, he is pouring out as a drink offering in addition to their sacrifice. Their support allowed him to be a drink offering, and even death could not steal his joy. Now, this is, this is language, Old Testament language again. And at a sacrifice, they're going to sacrifice an animal. They place it on the altar. They start burning it. And there would often be a drink offering that would be poured onto all of that. And that would wisp up some smoke and have a pleasing aroma. And that would be the common theme. And that's what, what Paul is saying. He's like, I get to participate in your faith. I get to be poured out as a drink offering on your sacrifice of faith. He is celebrating that. And then he doesn't, he doesn't stop there. He says, come and be glad and rejoice with me. He is inviting you to rejoice and be glad with him. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. So we have seen that a Christian is joyful and steadfast obedience. Or maybe let's put it another way. The practical outworking of the Christian is a life that is joyful and and steadfast in obedience. So I want to ask you, do you understand how God changes us? Do you understand this principle of Him working, we work? This participating in what He has for us. There's so many other passages that we could go to that talks about God having prepared work for us to do ahead of time that we get to participate in. But do you see the need for working out your own salvation, your own sanctification, your own pathway to being more like Christ? Do you see the need to plant the seeds, to dig up the hard ground, to put yourself in position to grow? Do you see that? This is a comfort because you're not doing this on your own power or your own strength. Do you see how much joy this could bring to you instead of grumbling and complaining? but living a life of joy. Do you see the joy? So you now have your marching orders. You know how you are to live this Christian life and how it works. Can you do something this week to implement that in your life this week? You know, there's one option that we have available here as a church is this new members class. This new members class I'd like to invite you to is that you can learn about our church, how we can partner with you in the practical Christian life, how it, what it means to be a member of a church. It's very important that you understand what that means and why you need that accountability in your life. Because many people will attend church and then at some point they get bored or distracted and they don't come back and they're left wandering around in the wilderness by themselves. We as a church body commit to walking together, and when you don't show up to church, somebody from the elder board is going to find out, and we're going to reach out to you, 
and say, hey, are you doing okay? What can we do to support you? How can we help you? Why are you missing church? Are you sick? Is there something we can do? That's one way that you can participate in the practical Christian life. So join us at 4 p.m. today for that new members class. It'll be here in the sanctuary. So the Christian life is lived through not asking, why is this happening to me? But saying, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. You ever heard that song, nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. That is another way to understand the Christian life. You are clinging to the word of life. Will you cling to the word of life this week? Will you look at the word of life this week? Will you hold it like a precious child and put your face in it? Well, then you show others that same word of life. Look here how the word of life speaks to your condition. That's my, my request for you this week. That's what the word of God says we must do. Will you do it? Does anybody not want to do that this week? Just kidding. I'm not going to embarrass you. Do that this week. Cling to the word of God. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we know that we do not live on bread alone but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Father, we know that God's word is truth. It speaks truth. It is the source of joy in our life because it shows us Jesus Christ. It shows us Christ who came, lived a humble human life in order to make things right between us and God. Father, I pray that for everyone in this congregation that they would know Christ and they would walk like Christians, not with grumbling and complaining, but glad and joyful at whatever circumstance God places in their life. Father, we ask these things in the name of Jesus, through the power of the Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen.